Richard Sajko had reached the end of his shift at Avis Car Rentals in Mascot, near Sydney's domestic airport. It was midnight, and he was readying to go home after what had been a quiet night. As usual, Richard had bought a meal packed by his grandmother. He was a quiet but not unfriendly young man, and was known to his colleagues as an honest hard worker. There was never any trouble when Richard was around. Richard walked to the dimly lit car park where his pride and joy, a red Holden Commodore with a V8 engine, was parked. A colleague, also on her way home, saw him reach the car and noticed that someone was sitting in the passenger seat waiting for him. The car must have been unlocked. The co-worker could not identify the other person as the car was too far away, but for some reason she felt alarmed. She delayed driving off, pretending to look for something in her own vehicle while keeping the Commodore in sight in her rearview mirror. Richard had a conversation with whoever was inside and then got in. Things must be okay, she thought. And as she drove away, she saw the lights of Richard's car come on. At about 12.40 a.m. on that Sunday, 40 minutes after Richard left work at Avis, a witness being dropped home in a taxi spotted the red Commodore. It had been abandoned in Edward Street in Ashfield, near Richard's home, and nine kilometres from his workplace in Mascot. The damaged car was parked across the driveway, blocking it and obstructing the road. Richard loved the car, and he would not have left it there in such a state. And whoever had been driving had abandoned it in a hurry, as the driver's door was open. There was no sign of Richard. It would be 11 days before the police got round to looking into the abandoned car and making the connection with Richard's disappearance. The work colleague's glimpse in the rearview mirror as she drove away from the Avis office was the last time anyone saw Richard Sashko alive. It was now Sunday, 14 May 1995, Mother's Day. Richard was an only child, and his mum, Rosie, would never have a Mother's Day again. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading, and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Stephen Davis reading from his new book, Truth Teller, an investigative reporter's journey through the world of truth prevention, fake news and conspiracy theories. Stephen is a journalist with three decades of experience and has worked all over the world, from investigating the destruction of rainforest in Brazil to a strange rescue mission in Antarctica shrouded in secrecy. In his book, Stephen uses his experiences in journalism to expose the tools used by governments, corporations and some corners of the media to conceal and distort the truth. He's phoning in from New Zealand to tell us more about the book. Hi Stephen, thanks for joining me. Hi Angus, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth? <laughs> Absolutely I do, yes. 
Otherwise, I'd have to change the title of the book. <laughs> Excellent to hear. Um, so you've had an incredible career as an award-winning reporter, a foreign correspondent, television producer, documentary filmmaker, and now you're passing on your knowledge and experience to students of journalism. But what actually inspired you to pursue a career in journalism in the first place? Do you know, I don't know exactly the answer, but I can tell you this. When I was 10 years old, I had decided I wanted to be a journalist. And that's because I have a school report from age 10 uh, where one of my teachers has written, Stephen wants to be a journalist, but will need to improve his English. Um, you know, I achieved the journalism, but I'm not entirely sure about the English. <laughs> this, is, this will be going back a while for you, but I always love asking this question to journalists. Do you remember any of the first stories that you actually reported on? Yes, 100%. Um, I was a cadet journalist on the Herald, and we had a large group of uh, cadets who had joined the newspaper. This is the Herald in New Zealand. And all all the other ones who had joined already had a story in the paper. I was the last person to get a story in. And uh, this shows my age, of course. It was about the potential shortage of coal in New Zealand. Which city was that in? Like, where, where did you actually get your start? Auckland. Auckland, fantastic. Yep. So you're a cadet, but then what made you want to continue to pursue a career in journalism? It's not one of the most easy, you know, careers to embark on. What about it enamoured you? I'd like to mention something that uh, that very early on gave me an appreciation of the value of good journalism and how it affected real people's lives. Um, I had come to Britain, um, and, and this thalidomide investigation, of course, was huge in my memory, and I was working for a, a small paper near London called the Reading Evening Post, and um, one day we had a, a young woman come in, and she was a thalidomide victim, and she had um, um, had a car specially modified to allow her to drive because her arms were deformed. And some idiot had stolen her car, and she was very distressed by this, of course, and, um, and asked us to write a story about it. So I wrote a story. We used it on the front page the next day, and the thief had an attack of conscience and returned the car. She came in to thank me, gave me a hug. I have to say, I cried. I think half the newsroom cried. Uh-huh. And... And it was just a moment, and I suddenly thought to myself, yes, this is something that can, can have value. And, and I tell my journalism students, just remember that the, the, the small stories are as big as the, as the big ones. Um, in terms of major investigations later on, I, I'm proud of doing what was one of the world's first serious environmental investigations into the damage done to the Amazon rainforest by mining operations. Um, I've battled for many years to get justice for people who were delivered into the hands of Saddam Hussein on an aeroplane and held as human shields. Um, And more recently, a major investigation into some very strange unanswered questions behind the sinking of the ferry Estonia, which is not a story very well known in Australia or New Zealand or America or Britain, but actually was Sweden's 9-11. I mean, it's the worst shipping disaster in Europe since the Titanic. Over 900 people died. Yeah, when did that occur? 
27th September 1994. And what sort of unanswered questions are we talking about here? In the immediate aftermath, the Swedish government pledged to bring it to the surface so the ferry could be examined and the truth be brought out about whether it sunk, it was an accident, what, what happened, what were the circumstances. And instead of doing that, later they changed their mind and did the exact opposite. They literally buried it. They encased it in concrete. They stopped people coming anywhere near it. So first they pledged to bring it up because they want to get to the truth and then they bury it. So that's the kind of thing that, of course, makes an investigative reporter very suspicious. I wasn't very familiar with the story, and then in a, uh, an intelligence contact, a contact I, um, I had in Britain's spy service, MI6, who had shown himself to be very reliable consistently, said to me I should have a look at this. And he said, um, a treaty was signed to protect the wreck, and Britain signed it. And all the other signatories of Baltic nations, well, anybody looking at a map knows Britain is not a Baltic nation. Why did Britain sign it? So that was the start of the investigation, and it led me into some pretty dark areas. Um, a suggestion of Russian involvement I enlisted the support of a, of, a, of a Russian journalist to help me with the investigation. He was eventually had his family threatened and his own life threatened and had to, had, had to drop his part of the inquiry. Um, as I'm sure you know, there's a disturbing habit of journalists being murdered in Russia. One of his work colleagues got a tip off. He was investigating something else and said, look, there are some papers for you at this lockup in the metro station. And so he went and collected a briefcase, brought it back to his office, opened the briefcase, and it was a bomb, and it killed him. So the Estonia, there are still, I mean, I don't claim, and, and very often it's important to say this as an investigative reporter, you don't... You know, you don't always get to the bottom of things. I don't claim to know exactly what happened, but I certainly know that a lot of lies were told about it. I certainly know that the actions of the Swedish government were suspect, that the actions of the Russian government were suspect, that the actions of the British government were suspect, and that even after all this time, the relatives of the victims want answers. It may be an old story for some people, but for them it's never gone away. Absolutely. Uh, that's just one of the case studies that you write about in your book to sort of illustrate what you call a toolbox of methods used by corporations and governments to mislead the public and dodge accountability. How did you go about identifying these techniques of deception? Well, um, we decided on a toolbox because I wanted to make the book accessible to journalism students and young people, but also members of the public who don't really understand journalism by and large. I think journalists have done a spectacularly bad job in explaining the value of what we do, to be honest, and have suffered for it. We, we kind of assume the public knew what we did, did was valuable, but, you know, it's an assumption that sometimes proved to be untrue. So first off, I looked at my old investigations and, and then identified which which thing or things had been used to try and prevent the truth coming out. 
came up with a list. Then I looked at other uh, investigative reporters' stories worldwide and, um, and saw what, and talked to them and saw what had prevented uh, their, or hindered their investigations and eventually narrowed it down to this set of common tools. One of the case studies that you talk about in Truth Teller to sort of illustrate how some of these tools are used, uh, I think you mentioned before, the trip you took to Brazil to investigate a subsidiary of BP raising Amazon rainforest, just as BP ramped up its green, environmentally friendly image to the public back at its London headquarters. Um, what were the consequences of running this story and why did you decide to write about this case in the book? It tells you a lot about modern journalism now. Now, bear in mind that when we set out on this story, all we knew is that BP owned a mine somewhere in the Amazon rainforest that was destroying the environment. Uh, We didn't know the name of the mining company. We didn't know where it was. Um, As you know, the Amazon is bigger than Western Europe. Mm. And this, this mission defined needle in a haystack. And the Sunday Times Insight team was dedicated enough to send me out there and to spend weeks and weeks and weeks of time and, you know, a valuable reporter's time, salary expenses, trying to find this mine. So, so firstly, I can tell you, and disturbingly, no media organisation, I'm confident now, no matter how well resourced, would embark on an investigation like that. Mm. Those things just don't happen anymore. So, of course, by not happening, it means that those things are, are still going on. And, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Um, the other lesson, important lesson of that, which, you know, I deliver a whole lecture on this to my students, is always, always remember that your stories are about real people, that the people who assist you are doing so always at some sort of risk, sometimes at risk of their lives, sometimes their careers. And and when you leave, behind you, you will have left consequences. And in this particular case, sadly, I came back to Britain. We ran the investigation. You know, I felt, you know, very pleased with myself. Good piece of journalism. I thought it was important. And back in Brazil, the government, which was extremely pro-mining at the, that stage, um, hunted down the forestry service officials who'd smuggled me into the mine and they lost their jobs. Just ordinary working men who had assisted me, men who had to support their families. And a environmental professor at Sao Paulo University who had helped me actually had his tenureship threatened as a result of... Um, assisting me. So it's very important for reporters generally and for investigative reporters not just to think of something as just a story. I think the other important lesson about that is that when I was writing the book, when I was writing Truth Teller, I went back to contacts in Rondonia to see. And amazingly enough, all these years later, the rainforesters still being destroyed by mining operations and farming. And, you know, the world probably thought the problem was solved. There was a period where everybody wrote and thought about the Amazon rainforest and then, to be frank, kind of forgot about it. But the problem hasn't gone away. Yeah, so why have those sort of large-scale 
investigations like that sort of come to a halt? They take a lot of time. They take a lot of resources. They take um, the, the, the efforts of, uh, often of several journalists. And, and when you start, especially in a big investigation, you have no guarantee of a result. I've done inquiries where I spent weeks and weeks researching and didn't end up with a story. And also, we have just fallen complete victim to the plague of short-termism. You know, I think, I think the modern media has fallen for the siren song of social media. And, and think, think of this. I can sit in my office anywhere in the world, my newsroom, and I can, without moving, without even using the telephone... I can look online and write a piece about tweeting, who's tweeting what, the latest viral sensation, virtually without doing any work, and with almost no cost to my employer, um, versus actually getting out in the field and finding a story that, that hasn't previously been found. And it's not just investigative reporting, by the way, it's general reporting. I mean, people, there are fewer journalists and they leave the office less often. I speak to colleagues now who, because of social media, have to do four stories a day, tweet, do this, do that, do the other. There's no time for investigating anything. And that means that the people who lie and deceive real scandals don't get covered. Yeah, I remember you writing about that in your introduction, saying that there's so much good reportage and so many stories that just go completely ignored or uninvestigated because, you know, people are watching videos of cats skateboarding, really. (laughs) Um, It's a worrying state of affairs. I'm interested in the fact that you're a journalism teacher. I did a degree in journalism, and when I told people that I was doing that, I got a lot of raised eyebrows directed at me. And so often I'd hear the comment that, oh, why are you doing that? You know, journalism is a dying profession. Um, I mean, I think everyone can agree that it's certainly a changing profession and it's certainly a profession that's uh, having its challenges. Um, but do you really think it's dying? Is there truth to that? No, uh, journalism will, will, will not die for the simple reason that people, there will always be people who want to know the truth. There will always be people who want the rich and powerful and governments and corporations to be held to account. And journalists are, are, are good at doing that. I think... I'm slightly encouraged um, by the fact that now people have realized if, if, if you, the free stuff you get on the internet is likely to be bogus. It's free. I used to tell my journalism students, you know, I know you like free stuff. I know you like free music. I know you like free sites. But, but think if you're not paying for it, what effort is going into producing it? Now we're in a world where last year over a million people donated money to The Guardian so they could produce good journalism. The New York Times now has two and a half million digital subscribers. And I think people are starting to realize that if you want good journalism, you have to pay for it. Yeah, absolutely. The Guardian Australia has done some really, really good uh 
crowdsourced funding, I guess, in terms of their environmental report each year and have just got amazing responses every single time that they ask for help. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think people are really realising that just like any other media they consume, be it music or, you know, TV and Netflix and that sort of thing, if they value it, they need to pay for it. Otherwise, yeah. it just can't yeah. occur. And, and, and a world of free media is, is an invitation for propaganda, misinformation, disinformation and, and distortion. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to talk about one of the other tactics in uh, the toolbox of deception that you write about, and it's the delay, delay, delay tactic. And uh, that method of um, preventing truth, I guess, might seem a more innocuous tactic in the toolbox compared with other methods like shooting the messengers, like what happened in the Amazon, or the spreading of conspiracy theories. But there's a story in the book about a murder confession in Sydney, and you read some of that story at the start of the podcast, where this uh, tactic of delay resulted in the prevention of justice. Um, can you tell us about that case? Yeah. Well, we're delaying a delaying tactic uh, has always been a... Um, a um, has always been used against journalism. I, you know, I remember the old days ringing people and trying to get a story, and I had two hours to my deadline, and they were putting off talking to me, hoping it would all go away. And now it's even more effective um, because we're, we're in the age of short-termism. We're in the age of going on to the next viral thing on social media. And journalists simply, I think, follow things up less than they used to. Mm. The Sashko case uh, is a failure of journalism and a failure of policing. And um, as years have gone by, it hasn't received the coverage it deserved. I mean, this uh, young man disappeared and somebody turns up at the police station to confess. And it's not that he's a crazy man confessing because he knows Richard. And, you know, he, it's, it's established that he was in possession of Richard's phone after Richard disappeared, never to be seen again. And the phone was on Richard when he disappeared. Um, even, you know, when there was a, a brief flurry of publicity um, during the coroner's inquest about three years back, um, it just wasn't followed up because the questions weren't asked. It wasn't pursued vigorously. And at the end of the day, while everybody's moved on and forgotten about it, uh, Richard's mum has left not being able to bury her son. Yeah, it's really a shocking case. And um, it made me think as well, there's sort of like this conception that if there is, you know, a case of, of murder or whatever, no matter how old it is, that the police and the authorities will investigate it till the end point. But I guess the the, the power of public attention is, um, is very, very powerful, I guess. And if it's not there, then there's not that much of an incentive to follow things up. I guess that's what that case study illustrates as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the police are, the police are very um, prone uh, to focusing on cases where the media is raising lots of questions about it. And um, in this case, the questions have been, um, have been intermittent. And so, but you know, it, it's also the kind of, there's always a thing called the follow-up. You know, it used to be that journalists had diaries and um, you would write, I would write, you know, this has happened on this day, 
check in six months, see what's happened, see what's changed, see what's developed. Um, and now follow-ups, a lot of them are gone because I said everybody's at mercy of the 24-7, you know, social media stuff. And, um, and, so, um, and so cases like this slip through the cracks. I guess sort of speaking to the changing nature of media in a more hopeful way as well, at least you're now sort of seeing those true crime podcasts come out that can do a pretty fantastic job at unearthing old cases that uh, fell from the attention of the public and fell from the attention of police, and um, they're unearthing them and making sure that justice is served. So it's probably not an ideal answer to... Um, to the injustice in this case, but uh, I guess at least at least it is there is some sort of attention being brought back to these old cases where where justice hasn't been served. Yeah, I think I mean one of the jobs of journalism has always been to challenge injustice and to to try and get injustice corrected. Um, and to that extent, to the extent that those uh, podcasts and so forth and and, and Netflix programs do it. Um, that's absolutely fine. I do think there's a danger of regarding it as entertainment, mm. you, you know, because it's, it's, again, to get back to the point, I mean, it may be dramatic and entertaining and interesting and have us in thrall, but it's not actually entertainment. It's real grief, real death and real people's lives. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so in the book, you don't just write about how truth is distorted or concealed by governments and corporations. You also sort of go into how some corners of the media also sort of facilitate myths, truths and lies. And some of the instances of fake news you cover in the book are quite shocking. You open the book with an anecdote about how a trip by Barack Obama to India when he was president was reported across the American media to be costing taxpayers uh, $200 million per day, which was a blatant falsehood. And in November 2017, Fox News reported that a pair of illegal immigrants had brutally killed a Border Force officer, and Donald Trump uh, tweeted about that story. That story was also proved incorrect, and yet Fox News did not correct the record, and of course neither did Trump. How do media companies get away with such blatantly false reportage? Yeah, blatantly false. Let me first say, um, I'm kind of a, have a rather, I, I'm a very independent person. I'm neither a Democrat or a Republican. Uh, in fact, I don't vote for anybody. Don't vote for political parties. Um, and, and, and so I look at this thing, I think, fairly, fairly as a journalist. And what Fox News does is just morally indefensible. And they do it, of course, because they are looking for ways to to rack up their audience, to make them angry. And, you know, the whole, the whole principle of the thing is anger. Generate anger against whoever you're attacking. Generate widespread anger. And then those angry people will support your candidate, in this case Donald Trump, and not the other side. And so you hear a horrific story about a border patrolman being stoned to death by immigrants. I just imagine that. That's shocking. And then you may think to yourself, sitting in your home in Idaho, wow, that's awful, and we must do something about these immigrants. And so I'll vote for the candidate who's anti-immigrant. And But the story just simply wasn't true. Um, and, and in the end, you know, when the history is written... 
Fox News and others will have their comeuppance because historians will look at it and they'll just be astonished by the level of propaganda. But for now, they do it because it works. And also, let us not forget, it makes them lots of money. People tend to forget that. The, the Murdoch-Fox operation, you know, it's useful in terms of, as I said, generating public anger to support candidates they want to support. But it's also extremely profitable. Um, you know, they, 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 they make money out of ads. They get uh, really strong audience figures. The phrase fake news has become ubiquitous in the last few years, but from your experience as a reporter who's been working for three decades, hasn't the problem of misinformation and bias in the media always been present, or are we just talking about it more now? Uh, the problem has always been present, it's true. If you, in fact, if you read some, um, some of the 19th century press, it's, uh, it's pretty ferocious stuff and uh, actually pretty libelous stuff as well. Um, but I think the issue now is that we have the multiplier effect of, of, um, of social media. So uh, the ability to, of fake news to spread rapidly has increased, you know, by a factor of thousands. Um, there are a couple of recent studies that show that, um, proper scientific studies that show that um, a fake story spreads more quickly around the world than a true one. Um, and, and you might ask the reason for that, simply because it's more interesting. There are studies which show that in an average week, a quarter of people might share something that's false. Um, and half of those share it knowing it's false. And that's because, I don't know, they, it's a desire for social media acceptance, to impress your friends, seem interesting. People pass this stuff on, actually, without realising the, the damage that it does. If we end up in a society where nobody can tell the difference between truth and fiction, that will be devastating for us all. Yeah, absolutely. That's a scary thought and um, definitely scary because it feels like we're not that far away from a society like that. You say that we're in the midst of a war on truth and the liars are winning. What would you say to the people listening to this podcast, consumers of media and news, what would you say that they can do to improve the state of our media landscape? Is there anything that consumers can do? Absolutely. First of all, I think there has to be... Uh, everybody uh, in the next few years has to start teaching media literacy campaigns. Mm. And I'm starting my own... I'm writing my own course on this now to teach people to be ethical responsible consumers of information and ethical and responsible at the information you pass on. So first of all, ask yourself, if something remarkable drops onto your social media feed from somebody you've never heard of, and you do a quick search of other things, you can't find anything about it, how likely is it to be true? The second thing is you must absolutely treat information and words with the care and video clips for that matter, with the care they deserve. And don't just pass things on. You know, it, you're, you're in a way, you're individually responsible for this. You're individually responsible if you pass on a lie to your friends and you should take responsibility for that. So I think that people need to, to really become aware of that to become aware about the power of the stuff to do damage and to be responsible about the way they, they treat it. 
And and by the by, we're we're kind of things are going to get worse before they get better, because we have now techniques to manipulate video that are coming down the pipeline that are going to make it even harder. You could have a politician clip saying something he never or he or she never actually said. Yeah, absolutely. I've seen some of those examples of clips of people, you know, with Donald Trump or Barack Obama saying things or saber rattling to other countries and they're just they're just blatantly fake. It's a very yeah, scary yeah. new technology. Yeah. And bear in mind, by the way, that the, the, the reason that we have I mean, you know, as Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, you know, except for every other form of government. And if you, if you, if you participate in your own small way in this propaganda exercise and passing on false information, you're actually damaging the society you live in. And we don't want to end up like societies where information is manipulated 100% of the time and nobody can ever find out the truth, you know, dictatorships. Yeah, let's keep uh, George Orwell's 1984 a allegory, please, people. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me to talk about Truth Teller. This is all such um, important stuff to talk about, I think, and Truth Teller really, really is a compelling read. So thank you so much for coming on to share some of your experiences and talk about the book. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. Truth Teller by Stephen Davis is out now from Exile Publishing. It's available at all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.